0: So yes, we invite you, O oh God, to have mercy here. Uh, to put your mercy and your grace on display by meeting us in the midst of our need. Speak to us through your word. Remind us of your great love for us today. In the name of Christ, and with enthusiasm, the people of God said, amen. In the name of Christ, with enthusiasm, the people of God said, That's better. Listen, we're talking about what it means to be vulnerable today, and we're talking about the problem that we encounter when we choose not to be vulnerable. We're going to unpack that all as we kind of move along here today, but before we get there, I want to help us kind of feel a little bit of that vulnerability, To feel a little bit of that insecurity, and then we'll talk about why that becomes a problem. And so here's what we're going to do. We need to do an exercise here, so close your eyes if you would. Close your eyes. Don't act like you're too good for it. Just close your eyes, okay? And here's what I want you to do. In your mind's eye, that kind of video screen that you can hit the playback button in your brain, I want you to picture yourself when you were in junior high, middle school, 12 year old, you. How do you look? You look good. Don't open your eyes and look at me. I'm not going to help you with this. This is you and your junior high self. First, I want you to picture what kind of hair did you have? Men of God, were you a mullet guy? Were you a rat tail guy? Were you a half bottle of gel guy? Were you a bowl cut guy? Women, were you a Farrah Fawcett look alike? Were you a side pony girl? Were you a mucho hairspray girl? I had to rat it all up and tease it or whatever it is to make it look like you sang for poison or something. How about what what, what were you wearing? Were you wearing polyester? Were you wearing bell bottoms? Were you wearing those like sweet jeans with the huge tigers embroidered on the pocket? Do you remember those? Some of you still wear those. Now that you picture yourself in junior high, I want you to picture how you felt when you were in junior high. Picture how you felt when you were in middle school. Not a specific situation or a particular instance, but what was the prevailing emotion that kind of dominated your entire junior high existence? Can you name it? Can you put your finger on it? Look up at me here. In the midst of changing voices, acne, puberty, changing emotions and all the other crazy stuff that comes along with it. Our junior high experience tends to make us feel exposed, doesn't it? Insecure and vulnerable. Just so you know that I can commiserate here and I can own this with you, I felt the very same way in junior high, and and here's why, this is me right here. Now, this is literally me. Now, I'm sorry for like the grainy kind of picture here, Uh, But it was taken for my driver's license when I was 16 years old. I couldn't find any pictures of myself when I was like 12, 13. And even if I could, I wouldn't have shown them to you anyway. So this is a mullet in all of its glory. For those of you who don't know what a mullet is, that's what that is. There was a time in my life, uh, actually about that age, where I could reach around and touch my hair in the back. That's how long it was. You know why? Because I was awesome. That's why. (laughs) You can take that picture down immediately if not sooner you know I don't know what it is about junior high but they're not typically our best years are they and some of you are in junior high listen you got a lot of great years in front of you these are not them it's just tough we change there's emotions and all that kind of stuff that comes along with it and it causes us to feel insecure it causes us to feel vulnerable it causes us to feel exposed to some extent and here's the thing those emotions don't disappear when puberty disappears do they We still feel vulnerable at times. Unfortunately, that insecure junior high, middle school kid is still lurking somewhere within. Isn't he or she? Don't believe me? Tell me how you feel the next time you step on a scale and weigh yourself. Tell me how you feel when you say, I love you for the first time to somebody. Tell me how you feel, men or women, when you like that person at work or you like that person at church or whatever and you finally muster up the guts to ask him or her out. Tell me if you don't feel vulnerable and insecure once again and you start to sweat and you start to panic and you get your words mixed up and all of a sudden you're back at 12 years old again. Tell me, parents, if you don't feel uniquely vulnerable when you finally get honest with your own children about your failures in the past. We don't always grow out of that insecurity, out of that aversion to vulnerability, or even out of that vulnerability because it's still there. It still lurks within us. We still take risk. And the reality is that vulnerability is really rooted in relationships. We don't feel vulnerable if we're just kind of by ourselves. We typically feel vulnerable as we understand how others perceive us. We feel vulnerable within the context of relationships. But vulnerability is required for relationships. We have to kind of... uh, let, let ourselves be known. We have to uncover parts of ourselves. We have to risk vulnerability in order to experience love and relationships. In fact, there's a theologian that we talk about often in here. It's a guy named C.S. Lewis. Look at what C.S. Lewis writes about vulnerability and love. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. And, and this is how he solves He says, if you don't want to f- love, if you don't want to feel vulnerable, if you want to avoid vulnerability, here's how to do it. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. So if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Think of what C.S. Lewis is saying here. It's intuitive, but it's also profound. Relationships require risk. Love requires vulnerability, but we are reticent to let ourselves be fully known. We are reluctant to step into vulnerability. Again, no one wants to be the first to say, I love you, because it renders us vulnerable, and there's a fear that we might not hear it back. No one wants to be the first to admit fear or failure, or the word we would use here is Sin, no one wants to be the first to speak out because we don't want to be vulnerable and we're afraid others might reject us or not love us or separate from us in relationship. And so that aversion to vulnerability, our deep desire to cover our shame, to hide our insecurity, to burn all those pictures of ourselves from junior high. That aversion to vulnerability, you know its rooted in who we are as people? It's part of our DNA. It's ingrained within us. Think about it this way. If you recall the creation story and Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, when they rebelled against God, what's the very first thing that they realized? That they were naked. That they were exposed. That they were vulnerable. And once they realized that they were vulnerable and exposed, what was the first item of business? Cover up. Not let the other person see who I am completely. It's part of who we are. But just as C.S. Lewis said, in order to be completely loved, we must be completely vulnerable. In order to be completely loved, we must be completely vulnerable because here's why. If someone says to you, I love you, I love you, it's hard to accept that because in the back of our minds, we're thinking, well, if they knew this about me, or if I thought this way, or if they, if they knew I thought this way, if they knew I did this, if they knew I said that, if they knew I felt this way, if, if they knew who I really am, if I was totally, totally vulnerable, then they wouldn't love me anymore. See, in order to be completely loved, we must be completely vulnerable. And so the tragedy is that we sacrifice our deep need to be loved on the altar of self-protection. We sacrifice our deep need to be loved completely on the altar of self-protection. Our aversion to vulnerability, to letting others see who we really are, prevents us from knowing and feeling that we are loved unconditionally. So what's the solution? So what's the solution to this problem we have with vulnerability? Uh, there are actually scientists out there. I don't know if you know this, but there are scientists who, who, <laughs> who study uh, junior high insecurity. Could, could you imagine being one of those scientists? Like this is literally what they do with all of their time. They study junior high and middle school insecurity. And, and they study not just how we feel and how we interact in junior high and middle school and high school, but they study how that impacts us into adulthood and how we feel then, that vulnerability that we feel then continues through adulthood. And that vulnerability extrapolates itself out over time and impacts and shapes who we are. So one of those uh, scientists, a researcher named Kathleen McElhaney, did a study on junior high and, and high school and middle school insecurity and vulnerability. And, and here's her solution. After all of this research, this is what she came, this is a conclusion she came to. It's up here on the screen. She says, this is the key to, to solving our problem with vulnerability and feeling total and complete love. The key is finding a group of people with whom you can feel at ease being yourself. If you want to solve that vulnerability problem, if you want to experience unconditional love, you've got to find a group of people with whom you can be at ease being yourself. In other words, here's what Mechel is saying. When we feel most exposed, most vulnerable, if someone would protect us, if the most vulnerable parts of us are hidden behind safe and secure relationships that tends to define our identity and even shape our future. And this is true no matter how old you are. Here's the thing. This is what Psalm 121 is about. This is exactly what Psalm 121 is about. It's about finding in God a place to be completely vulnerable. It's about finding in God a place to be completely safe. It's about finding in God a being who already knows you, who already knows what kind of haircut you had in junior high, who already knows those choices that you've made, those decisions that you've made, who already knows how you feel and how you think. He knows the deepest parts of who you are. He knows every hair that's on your head. He knows you completely. You are already rendered completely vulnerable before him, and you are completely loved by him. This is what Psalm 121 is about. So there's one big idea that's communicated throughout Psalm 121, and it's simply this, you are safe in God. You are safe in God. This is our big idea from Psalm 121, and what we're gonna do this morning, kind of with our time remaining, is unpack that big idea piece by piece, and I wanna show you how David in Psalm 121 helps us understand this one big idea that you are safe in God. And what I mean by by unpack it piece by piece, is we're going to go each word and examine each word and examine the ways in which David communicates uh, a principle and, and underscores what's happening in our big idea that you are safe in God. So word for word here, one at a time, we'll start with you. You. David tells us in Psalm 121 that this psalm is for you. This message is for you. And it's critical that we understand this because as we studied the Psalms all summer, there's a number of Psalms that we would call descriptive Psalms. What I mean by descriptive Psalms is David or the other psalmist are describing their experience with God. They're not necessarily commanding us to do anything. They're not necessarily exhorting us to do do anything. They're not necessarily inviting us into anything. They're just writing down their experience of God. And so it becomes difficult to import those principles directly into our life. we got to understand what they are, and we got to import them into modernity and that kind of stuff in order to help us apply what the Bible has to say or how these individuals described their relationship to and with and their experience of God. But see, Psalm 121 is different. Psalm 121 is what we would call a prescriptive psalm. What David is doing in Psalm 121 is he's saying to us, I want to invite you into something. I want to command you to do something. I want to exhort you to do something. I'm talking directly to you. You want to know how I know that? It's because Psalm 121 has eight verses and the word you or your is repeated ten times. The entire thing is written in the second person imperative. David is talking to you. David is talking to me. He's not just describing his own experience. He's inviting us, he's inviting you into that experience. This psalm is for you. The word you is repeated 10 times. Do you think David wants you to know that this message is for you? You better believe it. This message is for you. But here's the thing. Here's why this matters. Here's why this is critical. You you know why? Because we like to think that God's love and grace is for everybody else. When we think of the grace of God, when we think of the love of God, when we think of the gospel, especially those of us maybe who have been walking with God for a little while, especially us church people, we tend to think that the message of grace is for our wayward kid, for our addicted neighbor or for our dis- depressed coworker and in Psalm 121 David comes along and does us a favor he says yeah yeah the grace of god the love of god the invitation of god it's for those people too but it's for you that's why i'm going to repeat the word you 10 times in 8 verses because i want you to know it's for you David says, look, I'm the guy that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. I'm the pickin' king in Israel, for crying out loud. And God's grace is for me, and it is most definitely for you. So here's my invitation to you this morning. As we talk about God's protective grace the ways in which we can be totally vulnerable and totally exposed before him and still loved unconditionally, I want you to know that this message is for you. So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna say it out loud just so we know it's for us. So I want you to repeat after me. God's love is for me. me. One more time. God's God's love is for me. Yes, it's for others, but it's also for you. And that's what David wants us to know in Psalm 121 today, that God's love is for you. Let's grab the second word from Psalm one or from our big idea from Psalm 121. The second word is safe. You are safe in God. You are safe in God. I want to show you where David communicates this in the text and then we're going to talk about what it means to be safe in God. If you read Psalm 121, you would see that there's a word that's repeated six times in eight verses. The word you and yours is repeated ten times in eight verses. But there's another word that's repeated six times in eight verses, and that word is keeps. Keeps or keep. And the verses are up here on the screen, and the locations are up here on the screen. Keeps or keep. And and that word keeps kind of, it feels a little bland, doesn't it? It doesn't have a lot of teeth to it. Like, what does it mean that God keeps me? Or what does it mean that the Lord is my keeper? Or he who keeps Israel will keep me? The word in the original language is uh, shamar in in Hebrew, which is the language that your Bible is written in, and it's a pretty aggressive word. The word can be also translated, not just keeps, but protects or guards or secures. So listen to this. In the noun form, the word shamar is the word the Bible uses for bodyguard. That's pretty cool, right? Like here's what David is saying to us. The Lord keeps you. What that means is he's your bodyguard. God is your spiritual bodyguard. Well, we'll get to the spiritual part of this here in a minute, but I want us to kind of wrap our minds around what it means to have kind of a bodyguard or even some level of personal security. So. I called a friend of mine this week. I was thinking about people who who have like a lot of personal security, who kind of live their lives with a lot of people protecting them. So I called a friend who used to work for the prime minister. He worked for prime minister Stephen Harper for a little while. And he was Stephen Harper's right-hand man. He kind of went everywhere with Harper and did everything with Harper. So I called him. I said, listen, will you talk to me a little bit about what security detail looks like for the PM when he travels especially to like foreign countries that are kind of dangerous locations. And he said, sure, I'd love to talk to you about this. Is this for a sermon illustration? And I said, yes. And he said, all right, then I'll watch myself. And I said, okay, great. Because he knows that if he tells me something, I'm likely gonna repeat it publicly. So here's the thing. The prime minister, when he travels uh, to dangerous places, places, there would be dozens of individuals whose sole responsibility it is to protect the prime minister at any and all cost. Now, that might come as a surprise. Like, well, that makes sense. He's the PM for crying out loud. Like, that makes sense, I get that. But here's here's what was surprising to me. Many of those personal security guards for the prime minister would be like really conspicuous. You know who I'm talking about? Like the guys wearing the dark suits and the dark glasses and they have like an earpiece in and they're talking into the lapel of their jacket. It's like, look, I know you're a security guard. Like, don't try to fool me. Here's the thing. A bunch of those security guards, a large portion of those security guards, are just wearing, like, plain clothes. So here's here's what this means. There could be a guy wearing, like, Birkenstocks and socks and, like, plaid shorts and a throwback Expos jersey that, if you got close to the prime minister, would snap your neck. Now, I think that's pretty awesome. Just like normal people walking around protecting the prime minister. Here's what else I found out, that when the prime minister travels, he travels in an armored car. Again, not a surprise, but when he travels to really dangerous countries, there would be multiple armored cars in that caravan, and nobody knows which of the armored cars the prime minister is in. It's like three-card Monty out there, like follow the ball, right? And nobody knows where the prime minister is at. And while they traveled in that caravan, they have helicopters flying over them for security and for surveillance, And then they have different caravans of vehicles that act as decoys. So this caravan could go this way and this caravan could go this way. And you don't know where the prime minister went. And they have decoy helicopters too, which I think is really cool. It's like we've got a helicopter up here for surveillance. but we got one up there that's just for kind of kicks and giggles, right? Just smoke and mirrors up there. They've got planes that fly over the caravan just in case the situation gets sticky and they can intervene. You know what I mean by intervene? Blow you up. That's what that means. If you try to do something. The other thing that he told me, which, which, which is great because I wish I had this in my personal life, is that uh, there are uh, any of the individuals in, t- in terms of his family and friends, personal security and staff, they all wear a pin on the lapel of their coat or on their, uh, you know, whatever it is that they're wearing, and the pin is is the same kind of pin, but they're all styled differently. And depending on the style of pin that you're wearing, you get different levels of access to the Prime Minister. So if you're wearing a pin and you come up to the Prime Minister and you try to shake his hand or pat him on the back, and the pin indicates that you're not really supposed to pat him on the back or shake his hand, see, guy in the Expos jersey with Birkenstocks and socks comes back and takes care of you if you don't have the correct pin on. Again, I wish I had this in my own personal life because I was at Center Island this last weekend and I wanted people far away from me. I wish that they all had to wear pins. They shove all those people on that little boat, and everybody's sweaty and smells. I don't like it. It's a weird deal. So here's the thing. This is the picture of God that David is giving to us. He's literally using the word bodyguard. The Lord keeps you. He protects you. He secures you. You So you are safe, secure, and completely guarded in God's love, so much so that you can be completely vulnerable. I started thinking this week, like, if I had that level of personal security in my life, I would behave differently. Wouldn't you? Like, I would mouth off a little bit more. I would be a little bolder. I would be a little more confident. You know why? Because nobody can do anything about it. Like here I am in an armored car with all this personal security. I would be a lot more confident. That's just me and my sinful heart talking, right? That's just what happens. And don't lie. You would do the same thing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the same idea when it comes to God. You are so protected in him. So safe and secure. He guards you to the nth degree. So when you come before him and when you deal with situations in your life, you understand that you can be radically bold, confident. You can mouth off to insecurity and sin because you're so safe and protected in him. Spiritually speaking, you've got God helicopters flying over you. You've got dozens of security guards around you, and no thing and no one can get access to you unless God first checks their pen. So you can render yourself completely vulnerable because God is your spiritual bodyguard, and nothing can harm you. So listen, when the enemy of self-doubt comes knocking at your door, when the enemy of temptation comes knocking at your door, When the enemy of, am I really saved and I'm kind of insecure in my salvation, when the enemy of, what does my future hold, when the enemy of worry, when they all come knocking at your door and they try to get access to you, mouth off, for crying out loud. You've got God as your bodyguard. You are totally safe in him. Look at the way Paul says it in Romans 8. It's up here on the screen. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's how radically safe we are in God. So we can be radically vulnerable and experience radical love. You are safe in God. You are safe in God. The third word of our big idea is God. You are safe in God. Now, it might not be a shock that we're talking about God at church, but David really wants us to kind of see a picture of who God is when he talks to us and talks about how we are protected, guarded, kept, and secure in God. Who is this God that we're talking about? Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 121. Look what David writes. He writes this, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help Come, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, in the original language, in in the Hebrew, these two verses are not divided. They are connected. They're inextricably bound because David wants us to see two things. He wants us to see God and, and this idea of lifting our eyes up to him and looking to him for help, but he also wants us to see God In his relationship to and with the hills and the heaven and the earth. So let's let's use a different kind of version of the Bible. It's Eugene Peterson's rendering of Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. Because it will help us get a picture of what David's after here. Look at how Eugene Peterson uh, renders Psalm 121 verse 1 and 2. says, I look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from mountains? No. My strength comes from God who made heaven and earth and mountains. What David wants us to see in the first two verses of Psalm 121 is that you are safe in the God who made heaven and earth and mountains. David's saying to his enemies, do you think you can get to me? Do you think you can shake me? Do you think you can cause me to feel Vulnerable, or insecure or exposed or at risk or in danger. The God who made you is protecting me. The God who spoke Everest into existence. The God that upholds the universe by the very word of his power. The God who made the heaven and the earth and the hills and the mountains and the valleys. The God who made the humpback whale that shot up out of the water with kayaks in the water, which I watched a video of yesterday. It was craziness. Like, the God who made the seas, the God who formed the foundations of the world, the God who upholds it again by the very word of his power. This God, Yahweh, who made you, now guards you, protects you. This is not some pansy God. This is a God of everlasting power, and you are safe in him. Now, when it comes to applying this, it's not always easy, is it? Because there are moments when that junior high kid comes creeping back to the surface And we feel vulnerable again, and we feel insecure again, and we feel all those kind of emotions that we felt when we were 12 or 13 years old. Maybe you don't, but I do. I've had a number of situations in my life, uh, you know, over the last 37 years or whatever it is, and even recently where I felt just so in danger, so insecure, so vulnerable as Amy and I just uh, went through a failed adoption And when we've had challenges and struggles in our marriage, when I've had dating relationships fall apart, I've had ongoing battles with clinical depression, and in those moments, I feel afraid. I I feel vulnerable. In fact, I remember um, a situation at my previous church when I was serving at my previous church in in Scottsdale where I was going through a season where I felt really ineffective in ministry. Uh, Men, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, women, that you're job and your vocation when you feel like, man, I don't know why they pay me for this. They're going to find out one day that I stink at this and then they're going to fire me and everybody's going to be better off. Like that's kind of how I felt. And so I remember one day we were in our uh, master bedroom, Amy and I were in our our master bedroom and I was, I remember exactly where I was standing. I was standing in the bathroom and she was at the bedside and I just kind of spilled my guts emotionally. Like I just let her have it. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I should quit. I have nothing good to say, I'm a really bad singer, which is what I was doing at the time. Like I can't believe they pay me for this, they're going to find out I'm a fraud and I'm fat. Like, that was it. Like, and I know you've, I, you've had those conversations too. In fact, you're nudging your spouse going, we just had that conversation last night. Like, and you feel so vulnerable and so at risk and so insecure, at least I did. My wife was nice enough to remind me of the truth of Psalm one twenty one. She said, "Babe, you might not be safe in your marriage. Thank you so much, babe, for that. That was really encouraging." No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I said, "I mean, you know, listen, my marriage is not going to last forever. One day, God will take one or the both of us home. It's not eternal." My job and my ministry, they're not going to last forever. In fact, they feel tenuous at times and imbalanced at times. I feel insecure at times. You know, just these things that you feel like you can control and circumstances, and you're going, man, I just, I feel so unsafe. I feel so vulnerable. I do not feel at ease. But then we can run to Almighty God. We can be totally vulnerable and totally exposed we can pour all our guilt and shame and fear and regret. We can pour all of our insecurity. We can pour all of the things, all that self-doubt. It all goes to him, and we can pour it on him. And he goes, I can handle it. Relax. You're safe here. You can be at ease here. You can be who you really are here. I already know all of that anyway. I'm God. So just be at ease. Be vulnerable. And God invites us into that relationship with Him where we can be totally vulnerable and totally loved. And that's pretty cool. You ever recognize that, um, like, true vulnerability, real vulnerability is like contagious? You ever realize that? It's like someone vomits and everybody else in the room starts vomiting. It's like a, just a domino effect, you know? So if you're in a room with a bunch of people and someone vomits emotionally and they just let you have it, and they're like, here's who I am, right? And they just let it. Then everybody else in the room is like, I think I should share my deepest failures and regrets and shame, right? And they just pour it all out and then everybody hugs and cries and feels better. It's awesome. It's awesome. But when it comes to vulnerability, someone's got to take the lead, right? Someone's got to step out. Someone's got to. All right, I'm just going to trust, I'm going to risk, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to put myself out there, I don't know quite what's going to happen, but I've just got to, I've got to just let them see some of who I am and see what they do with it, see how they respond to it, and hopefully they'll be vulnerable too, and then we can enter into a loving relationship. Now watch this. Do you realize that's what God did in Jesus? Think about that for a minute now. So that you could be completely vulnerable in him, he made himself vulnerable to you. At the cross, the God who is love was literally totally exposed. Completely vulnerable. He took the first step. He rendered himself vulnerable. He let us see who he really is. So that in this moment, he could invite us into a relationship that he had planned before the foundations of the earth. And even talked about in Psalm 121. So that he could invite you, 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 you into safety, security, and relationship where you could be totally vulnerable in him. And he took the first step. That's the kind of God we have. I've asked Andy and the team uh, to help us close and respond and conclude by singing those first two verses of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's stand and respond in song the preaching of God's word.